The reading this evening is from Song of Songs, and we're going to be reading the whole of chapter 1 and the first seven verses of chapter 2. Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of pearls. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This is God's word. Which may be a surprise. <laughs> uh, let me have my welcome. My name's uh, uh, Matt Fuller. Great to see you. And um, let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we know well that our sexuality is a very deep part of who we are. You have made it to be so. And you are the one who understands perfectly how we are made. We ask as we uh, come to this book, you would uh, teach us, we would be uh, rightly uh, shaped by your word to view ourselves, our sexuality as you would, as part of our discipleship, as part of the way in which we love and honor you. Amen. Now, why are we looking at the Song of Songs? I've asked myself that many times this week. 
Uh, in part, it was because um, uh, back in the summer, when it was roughly planning the year and the sort of things we would look at, uh, I, I was encouraged by uh, actually staff and elders that um, we needed to do some uh, explicit teaching about sex and sexuality again on a Sunday night um, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one would be there, are a number, there were a number of marriages that were struggling as sexless. And uh, if, if, you've, if you've not been married, that will stagger you. But uh, I know of three marriages not in this church that uh, all have been married over five years and that have never had sex. Yes, those sort of things go on. So partly because uh, actually even within the church there were some struggling uh, on sexless marriages. And of course there's the other side, which is just culturally we're pretty obsessed with sex as a 21st century culture. And good again to bring our, our thinking under God's word rather than uh, the bombardment of uh, images uh, that faces us in the day and age. So we thought we'd look at the Song of Songs. And um, you may not have read it for a long time, you may never have read it, but even as it was begun to be read uh, there, you'll see what it is, is a poem about passionate, exclusive, committed love. That's what it is. It's a poem or set of poems, primarily that's what it is, a set of poems about passionate love that a man has for a woman and vice versa, within the context of commitment and uh, 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 exclusiveness. That's what we're looking at. Now, striking, it is, strikingly, it is at points um, fairly explicit in its, in its sexual nature. It's not crude. So it's not explicit in a biology lesson sort of sense or um, in uh, the sports club sort of sense, a, a, a crude assessment. But it is suggestive and erotic. Um, actually, there aren't many parts of the book where they're actually having sex. There's, there's only a, probably a couple of chapters where that's taking place and it's being described. And it's actually very beautiful in how it's done. It's not, it's not crude in any way, but it is fairly clear uh, what is going on here uh, between these two. Now, there is a danger to uh, looking at this on a Sunday night. And I have wondered the wisdom about it, uh, particularly over the past week or so. Uh, there's a danger for, for many that there could be a sense of frustration from at least three groups, uh, from those who uh, are just desperate to get on with this sort of uh, sexual encounter and haven't done so yet, so it could be frustration. It could be frustration from those who feel that maybe their chance for this sort of relationship has gone, possibly. There'd be frustration from some who are married and think, this is so far away from us, it's some kind of joke that this is what a marriage relationship is supposed to be like could be sort of frustration from, from many different groups. And then a different sort of group, there could be those who are just feeling guilty from mistakes they've made in the past. So as I've wondered about these things this week, I've thought, great, I've, I've got a chance to probably upset almost everyone. Um, maybe there'll be a couple who are uh, blissfully uh, untouched by it all, but um, uh, there's a chance in which you could uh, manage to upset all of us. But, of course, it is God's word. It is in the Bible for our good, and I think it'll do us much good. Um, what it is, is a poem about uh, passionate, committed, exclusive love. And uh, we're looking at it over three weeks. And um, essentially tonight, I want to introduce you to what, what it is, what we've got here, and talk a little bit about the exclusive nature of their love.
Uh, next week, we'll think about both the passion and frustrations of love, and in week three, uh, the commitment. Uh, we'll come to those things. So essentially tonight, I really want to ask, what is it? And um, then we'll jump into the text a little bit. But that's really what we're doing. So what do we have here? Well, as I say, it's a poem. It's a poem or a collection of poems. Now, before we uh, get into the detail of that, let me give you two wrong ways of reading the Song of Songs. These would both be mistakes. Uh, The first comes out of an idea that sex is bad. And so that has, I think, fed into an interpretation of the book as allegorical. That is, you can take all the details that are in here and say, what we have here is a description of God and his people. Now, you see, that allows you to be very negative about sex. If you think, oh, it can't be about sex, that's just scandalous. So let's say it's about God and his people. And uh, throughout, this has actually been probably the dominant view of, uh, of the song throughout history. So um, let me tell you how that sort of thing runs. So chapter 1, verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Well, that's Israel in the Old Testament, um, begging God to save them from Egypt, obviously. Uh, that's what's going on there. When the kiss finally comes, well, that's God giving the law on Mount Sinai. That's his kiss upon his people. Uh, chapter 1, verse 13, my lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Well, what's going on there? Well, obviously, the, the breasts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus is <laughs> resting between them. And uh, on it goes in such a vein. No, no. I think she's just saying, I like to take my lover and put him there. That's all that is going on. So that's slightly how the allegorical senses run. It becomes even worse when you get to, really, it's about Jesus and the individual Christian. Now, that, for my money, just gets a bit weird. Uh, I became a Christian when I was at university. And uh, the first week, it was a couple of weeks, actually, after I became a Christian, someone took me along uh, to a church, which had many strengths about it. But one of the songs that we sang was chapter 2, verse 4. Um, some of you of a certain vintage may remember it. It uh, went, you know, he took me to his banqueting table, and then the women echoed, he took me to the banqueting table, and his banner over me was love, and his banner over me was love, and this sort of went, went back and forth and around. And I just thought to myself, you what? I have no idea what anyone is talking about here in this room. What, is, what does this mean? And uh, someone told me afterwards, oh, it's in the Song of Songs. It's all about Jesus and his love for you. And I read it and thought, yeah. I don't think I want to say to Jesus, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. I, uh, Savior, I can, yeah, that's good. But, uh, and at that point, it becomes a little odd to my, for my money. And yet some choose to take it this way. Now, look, it is not uh, about that. It is not an allegory. That is, you can't take every detail that is here and push it onto either uh, God and the church or uh, Christ and an individual. You can't push the details that way. Now, we'll get to later on. I do think it is, there's a sense of typology. We'll come back to that. But there's nothing here in the Song of Songs to say, read it that way. Now, the Bible does have allegory. Uh, Example, uh, uh, 2 Samuel 12, um, 
David has sinned with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, let me tell you a story. There's a really rich man, there's a really poor man, and uh, there's a sheep. The rich man has loads of sheep, the poor man has one sheep. Uh, The rich man comes along and steals the one man's poor sheep. How do you feel about that? That's outrageous, says David. And then Nathan says, that's you. Um, You're the rich man. You've stolen Bathsheba, she's the sheep, from Uriah, the poor man. Now, it's a story that Nathan tells, but then he gives the explanation, gives the details. Here's the key to understand that story, that parable, as it were. There's nothing in this song to suggest this is allegory. Not at all. It just doesn't read that way. It doesn't say it's that sort of thing. So we're not to read it as allegorical, pushing all the details onto a Christian and Christ or, or, or church and God. shouldn't do that. It's one bad way of reading it. Now, the flip side is, um, if that flows out of the idea that sex is, you know, is a bad thing, really, the flip side is sex is everything. Sex is everything. And what you have here in the Song of Songs is a Christian Karma Sutra. You have a, a Christian sex manual, essentially, is what you have here. And so some take it that way. Now, that, I think, is just a product of our sex-obsessed culture, but I have heard it taught. Uh, listen to something fairly recently that went a bit like this. Chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, Tell me, you, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. And do you know what that means for today? That means that wives... Every lunchtime, you should text your husband and say, can I come and meet you at the office and we'll have a little romantic tryst in the somewhere or other? No, no. No, don't get carried away. You're, you're pushing the details a little too far there. Or chapter 1, verse 14. Um, you want to go to the vineyards of En Gedi. En Gedi is an, an oasis in the desert. Wives, what you should do is wait for your husbands to come home and make sure when he comes home, you give him En Gedi. You know, cook, bake him a cake. Do whatever he needs when he gets in from home and, and just make sure that your, your presence is an oasis in the desert of his day. And you think, you what? I mean, that's, that's like a, you know, something out of the 1920s or something. That's, that's, not, that's not what's going on. Or uh, best of all is when it gets to things like chapter 2, verse 6. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. That is the sort of, so it's taught, that is the sort of divine best way of holding. So you, people sort of work out and you sort of... Head, right, and what does that, anything, oh my goodness me, it's just not that. It is not a Christian's guide to dating and making love, it's just not. When you push the details like that, it, again, it gets absurd. Uh, and it, it just doesn't work in the book. So chapter 1, verse 4, as far as I can take it, understand it, they're going to go and have sex in the bedroom. When you get to chapter 4, the woman is a virgin, so you see, this is, not a, this is not a narrative with a progression. It doesn't sort of start off, you know, should we go out and then move through the stage? It's, that's not what it is. You have to tie yourself in knots to try and make it that sort of thing. So don't read it as an A to Z of conducting a Christian relationship. I think that idea just comes out of, I'm a Christian and I really like sex and I'm going to make this book all about how to have sex. It's not. It's just, it's not that. So not both of those would be bad ways of reading the song, what we have here, positively, is a poem or collection of poems. So the title, Solomon's Song of Songs. Song of Songs, I I think best understood, an anthology of songs, a collection of poems. Just like you could go and, and buy in Waterstones Shakespeare's sonnets 
and they'd all be about love. They're all different, but they're kind of all about the same thing. Don't try and read it as a novel. You'd, you'd find that a bit bewildering. It just wouldn't make sense. It's a collection of songs. And what we have here in the Song of Songs is a collection of poems. There's unity to it. There's, certain, there's two big refrains that run throughout the, letter, um, run throughout the poem, and we'll look at those uh, uh, next week. But it's a poem. It's Solomon's Song of Songs. It's either for Solomon, or, or I think that's the best way of understanding it. Um, it's written for him or dedicated to him. But as a poem, as poetry, it's not, it's not designed for clarity. As all poetry is, it's designed to have an impact upon us. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? What are you, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What day do you want? I'm June the 21st, that's the longest one. Would you, no, don't, don't, don't do that. You've ruined it, haven't you? You've just ruined the poem right there. And this is a, it's a poem, a collection of poems. So don't push it in that sense. It's designed to have an impact upon us. It sort of, if you read it, if you sat down and read it through, it slightly assails you with all the imagery of um, uh, ripe fruits and fertility and vineyards and gardens bursting with uh, fruit. It has an impact upon us. That's what it's meant to do. It's not, um, it's not part of the history of the Old Testament. So it doesn't advance the story of God's salvation particularly. It doesn't teach us um, a great deal with clarity on key doctrines of the Bible. It's part of the wisdom literature. Like Job, with its focus on suffering. Ecclesiastes, with its focus on what's the point of life. It's, it's wisdom literature with a focus on sexual intimacy within marriage. And it is a great blessing that we've got it. And what, I mean, what difference would it make if it wasn't in the scriptures? Well, we might. We might drift towards that negative view of sex. But having this here makes it very clear that God is positive about our bodies. He's positive about sexual relations. Actually, God's name doesn't appear at all in the Song of Songs, in my understanding of it. It's one of only two books where that's the case, this and Esther. Because God is in everything here. His, his approval is over it all. That's how we're to take it. So Song of Songs, it's a book that's given for, to say that sex and our bodies and um, uh, those urges that we have, they're good in the right context. And sexual intimacy is given for pleasure. It's given to cement the marriage relationship together. It is an essential ingredient of a marriage. Sex, I think, is right in saying biblically, it's as important to a marriage as prayer is as important to marriage. You need to have it in your married life, if that's your case. Now, who is the second thing? Um, so that's mainly what it is. It's a poem, okay? Who's here? Let's just look very briefly at the main characters. Well, there are two main characters, a man and a woman. Are they real? I don't know. I don't think so. I think they're just poetic characters sort of drawn up to, to display all the sort of things that are going on. But it describes the love of a man for a woman and vice versa. Those are the two main characters. Other characters, they're the girl's friends. We'll come to them a little bit later. Uh, and they sort of help and interfere, as is often the case. Um, uh, there are the girl's brothers who also protect her and interfere. 
as may well be the case as well. Now, sometimes people suggest that there are three characters. There's a man and a woman, and there's Solomon. And there's this sort of love triangle going on. Well, I think that's sort of more influenced by the sitcoms or the, uh, the, the soap operas than what's going on here. Solomon does feature, but he's sort of idealized. So chapter 1, verse 4, uh, the woman can describe her lover as the king. But also chapter 1, verse 7, he's a shepherd. Hard for him to be both, Solomon and a shepherd. When you get into um, uh, chapter 3, there's a long description of Solomon's wedding. But I think this is just the woman daydreaming about her own wedding day and comparing it to the royal wedding she saw last year. She's doing what many would do. She's daydreaming about her ideal, perfect wedding day. So I think there's just two main characters, the man and the woman. And she compares him to Solomon at various times. So what we have here, it's a poem. A collection of poems united by certain themes, certain characters, and certain refrains that run through it. Now once we've decided it's a poem, and you should read it through if you're not persuaded, that does affect how, we, um, how we're going to look at it together. Because it isn't a sort of chronological narrative. So we won't go chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and work our way through. Because it's a, a collection of poems with certain themes that keep recurring. Uh, we're going to look at different themes. So again, tonight we're going to look at some of their, the exclusive nature of, of their love. Next week, it's the passion and frustrations uh, that are there. And then, as I say, week three, commitment. Because these are the, the major themes uh, that pop up and crop up uh, throughout this collection. So that's, uh, that's what it is. So I've got one thing to say tonight. It's one thing to learn about their love for one another. They're blinded by their love. I mean, they said, have you got an outline? I said, no, not really tonight. They're blinded by their love for one another. That's, that's all we're going to look at in our remaining time. Let's have a look at the text. So uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, what's going on? She is intoxicated with him. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Um, all, all of her senses are slightly engaged here. The sense of wine, it's intoxicating. She's a little lightheaded in his presence. Uh, his smell is good. Unusual for a man in those times. But, um, or maybe well, there's nervous laughter there. The, uh, maybe that's true today. Um, but his reputation is good as well. There's a whole package going on here. So it's not just physically. Your name is like perfume poured out. His reputation. He's a man of worth that she's uh, desiring here. And it seems to me that she takes the initiative. Take me away. We'll come back to that in later weeks. Uh, to her, he's a king. That's how she views him. And end of verse 4, the friends will look on and approve. And that, that's useful. But very striking when you get to verses 5 and 6, and this is a very strong theme in this opening, uh, uh, opening chapter, how they view one another and how being loved can change you. Let me explain what I mean. So um, uh, you get to, chapter, uh, to verse 5 of chapter 1. Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedard, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons are angry with me. They made me take care of, my, of the vineyards, my own vineyard. Have I neglected what? Um, what she, actually, this is one of the clearer parts of the song. 
She's saying, I've, I've got a tan from being outside. Now, complete shift around. In our modern culture, tan is viewed as desirable, pasty white, undesirable. So people go on holiday and smear themselves with coconut oil and all sorts of things to get as much tan and go to tanning booths. I don't understand that, but that's what people do. Um, tan is good, pale is bad in modern culture. Back then, complete opposite. If you're pale face, that's because you're so wealthy you never bother to go outside and do any work. I mean, if you've got no tan at all, you, you must have loads of money. By contrast, as she says, she's, she's sunburnt, probably, because her brothers have made her go and work outside in the vineyard. And so she says, my own vineyard body, that's what it is in the letter, um, sorry, I keep saying that, in, these, uh, in the song, my own vineyard I've neglected. She's essentially, she's saying, look, all right, girls, all right, ladies, I know you're the, um, you're the uh, immaculately dressed girls from the city, and I know I'm the dowdy, frumpy girl who has to go and work outside, and my hair's a complete mess. I know that. Don't stare at me. I'm a complete wreck. I'm a shambles. But you know what? I'm lovely because someone loves me. I know you look at me and think I'm a mess. But verse 5, I know I'm loved. And that, that transforms everything. Transforms how I view myself to know that one loves me. Well, that's nice. What does, um, what does he think of her? Well, it's wonderful. Verse 9, I think you're a horse. You see that? Um, <laughs> verse 9, I liken you, my darling, to a mare, harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, not one to try. Um, it, you, know, you look like a horse. It's biblical. Don't, um, you will never get away with that. What's he say? Pharaoh's chariots were driven by stallions, male horses. He's saying, Do you know, you're like a female horse coming into a load of male horses on heat. That's what you do to me. You drive me nuts. He's basically saying, I see you and I get wildly excited. That's the point of the metaphor here. It's similar in chapter 2, verse 1, his opinion of her. So she says, I'm a rose of Sharon. I'm a lily of the valleys. They're two a penny. Roses in Sharon or flowers of Sharon, lilies in the valleys, they're everywhere. She basically says, I'm a, I'm a dandelion in a hedgerow. That's all I am. I'm nothing special. And he says to her, no, no, verse 2, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. When I look out across a crowd, you're the one in color and everyone else is black and white. You just stand out a mile for me. That's what he said. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm nothing special. I'm just a frumpy old girl who works in the, in the, in the fields. And I, I, I only see you in the crowd. That's his point. By the time you get to... Um, uh, to verses, uh, well, she returns the compliment. So verse three, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I wander through the forest. They're all rubbing there. They're just acorns. Then I think, oh, apple tree stands out. He is one amongst many. By the time you get to verses four and five, she's got a bit doolally. She says, I'm lovesick. Uh, verse five, I'm faint with love. I've gone completely doolally. Just flick over. What does he make of her? Again, uh, chapter, chapter four. Chapter 4, verse 7. By the time you get here, it's getting a bit ridiculous, really. Chapter 4, verse 7. 
All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Oh, oh, come on. (laughs) That is not true. Everyone has flaws. Everyone wakes up in the morning and looks, hmm, everyone. How can you do? This is objectively not true. And yet he can go on to say, verse 9, you've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. I'm crazy about you. Now, what is going on here? These two have such a a quality of affection for one another that they look upon the other and say, I think you're wonderful. Objectively, these are not supermodels. She's sunburnt and scraggly hair all over the place. All the city girls laugh at her. She's so unsophisticated. They're not supermodels. But to one another... There's no one else. No one else compares. Now, can I suggest that many of us have completely unrealistic views and expectations of beauty or appearance? So I I think there are probably some who, uh, who wander around thinking, well, I'm just, you know, what are you waiting for? Well, I'm just waiting for a Christian who looks like Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie. They don't look like that. It's just the makeup and the celluloid and the airbrushing. They don't really look that good in real life. I saw, um, caught up with a friend of mine last week who uh, had flown first class from, uh, from London to Sydney. Now, if you're going to go first class, that's a good journey to go first class, isn't it? Because otherwise, that's, uh, not that I've done it, but that's an exhausting journey. His, his brother travels crazy, crazy amount and had given him all the air miles to do a first class. He'd never flown anything other than economy. So he said he just went crazy, of course, in first class. Um, you, know, you know, here's the menu, sir. What would, you, what would you like as your starter? All of them. <laughs> Could I offer you a drink? All of them. Is it, would you like me to turn down your bed? Actually, can all of you do it? Because um, there seems to be more staff in this bit than there are passengers, all of you. Come on. The, uh, you see, he really went to town. Uh, but... Uh, this is not recent, actually, but, um, but uh, the flight went on and on and on, as it does. Towards the end of the flight, um, uh, there was one passenger who was attracting an enormous amount of attention from uh, the staff. And um, eventually he asked one of the, uh, the stewardesses, is that someone famous? I said, don't you recognize her? No, it's Kylie Minogue. I said, really? I mean, she's Diddy and, you know, there are spots and there are, you know, really? And of course, you know, there she was just as as a normal human being without all the, whatever it is, hours of uh, attention. And he said, it's great. It it made me realize even celebrities look rough in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, they don't, we have unrealistic view, expectations of beauty. Actually, what makes someone beautiful is the quality of the relationship you have with them, the commitment, the assurance that there is one who is absolutely committed to you. Now that gives you real freedom to love. Only if someone has declared their commitment to you in marriage do you have the absolute freedom to know that there is one who loves you. You can have all the glamorous city girls say, you're ugly. You say, I don't care what you think. I don't care. 
completely retools your view of yourself. I don't know if you saw, I thought this was really lovely. Um, last week, do you see Tom Clifford and Janine Walker uh, were engaged? You may have uh, missed this one. Uh, they were, uh, I think it's fair to say, an aesthetically challenged couple who met on a, a, a dating website called The Ugly Bug Ball. So it's a dating website for people who acknowledge that they're not the best looking in the world. And uh, he put this advert, well, no, he, he saw her on the, her photo, and this is what he wrote to her, his initial email. Dear Janine, just seen your beautiful face on the ugly bug ball and would love to meet up. You live near me, so this shouldn't be a problem. I've got a face that makes children cry. <laughs> but as they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I think you'll love me too. And actually, I mean, it's, you know, I think it's just marvellous in truth. These people, you know, in, you know objectively, you know, they're not going to grace the cover of a magazine. But they just found in one another, they, they met, they clicked, personality-wise, and now they, you know, they're engaged and getting married. And the enormous resources of the ugly bug ball said they're paying for an all-expenses uh, uh, honeymoon at a caravan park in North Wales. <laughs> now, let me be realistic here. Some of you who are single, some, not all, I'm going to be shot here, but some of you who are single look round the room and immediately knock out 80% because you think, oh, they're probably not, they're not attractive enough. And that's crazy. Because you see, this sort of desire, this sort of beauty that the lover and the beloved see in one another, that's not because objectively they're stunning, but because they know one another. They care for one another. They are committed to one another. Actually, when you have that as the underpinning, then you can look at your spouse and say, there's no one else for me. There's no one else for me. And for the marriage as well, we need to find satisfaction in our spouses. It is easy to, to compare the one we're married to to the celluloids, pictures, the dream, and that's just crazy because no, they don't look like that. You know how it is, you watch on the TV, the films, uh, the orchestra strikes up, and the sex is magnificent. And when you get home, you get into bed and your, your back flares up, and the sex is disappointing. And, you know, just doesn't the two just, mm, just doesn't quite fit, and you think, oh, that, there's something better out there. No, don't that's fantasy land. Great sex, according to the Song of Songs, is with someone who loves you. Someone who wants to serve you. Someone who is committed to you. That is great sex. That's how it comes. That's the underpinning. So the man and the woman, they are blinded by their love for one another. Do you see that? They think they cannot, they just want to praise the other. They see the other as stunning because of the relationship they have. Um, a couple of other things very briefly that feed into that. Obviously, it becomes a, they speak of their love. Um, they talk to one another. They write poems to one another. Much of what is here is designed to evoke a mood. It's not just that they, uh, they admire the other, but they speak about it. They've clearly taken time. Now, you might read this and think, well, you know what? I'm not really the poetry sort of guy. Or um, uh, I'm not the sort of woman who writes poems just off the cuff. 
And, um, you know, if I tried in this vein, what would I end up with? Uh, uh, you know, you're the most beautiful. Um, I liken you to a mare. Um, um, what's that look like in modern-day language? Uh, and you get yourself, look, don't... Look, this is not spontaneous. I take it they've thought about this. They've thought about their spouses. They've thought, what compliments can I pay to them? They've thought about it. Daydreamed about it. In chapter 5, verse 9, the friends say, come on then, why? Come on then, woman. Uh, how is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is it your beloved is better than others that you, uh, that you speak in this sort of way? And so she comes out with a list. Now, completely unfair, so don't do this on the way home. But if, you know, you could do this. <laughs> but, you know, if you're married, you could go home and say, um, uh, what would your song or poem about me be. <laughs> it'd be awful, wouldn't it? No, it'd be awful. Don't, so don't do it. Don't do it. But there's a sense in which they've, they've thought here. They've had a little daydream. What is it that I really like about my wife? No, they're not the things I don't... They're not the things that are annoying. Ignore them. I'm focusing on positives here. What are the things I admire about my life? What are the things I admire about my husband? I'm going to tell them. I am going to tell them that I find them attractive physically. I'm going to tell them that. It's very normal to find your spouse, spouse attractive. That's a normal thing. So tell them. They spoke of their love. Another obvious thing here, very briefly, is they, they protected their love. So they keep wanting to get away. So chapter 1, verse 4, take me away with you. Let's hurry. Chapter 1, verse 7, you know, where are you going to be? Let's meet up together. Chapter 2, uh, verse 13, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come away with me. They, you don't get this sort of relationship without time. It just doesn't happen. Unharried time. I mean, you know, for the marriage, this is fairly fun. To, it's ABC of marriage, isn't it, of marriage prep. You've got to have an evening a week where you talk to one another. You've got to have a date night, which is not TV night. It's where you talk. A night a month where you go out somewhere. So you're out of the house and don't see the stuff that needs doing, the ironing, the bills to shuffle. Um, you need to go out. It doesn't need to be expensive. Just go for a drink after dinner. But go out, get out of the house. You've got to do those things to talk. So you talk about your feelings. You talk about your fears. You talk about your hopes. You talk about what's troubling you. To so talk at that level. Rather than just the mutual coexistence that lots of marriages can slip into just functional partners like running a business but we call it a marriage you've got to, you've got to make time you've got to protect the actual we haven't got to them we'll look at them in brief at some of them next week but um, the actual descriptions of their romance their sex they're unrushed they're private they're lingering affairs and marriages need those times so you've got to take control of the diary Got to protect their love. So it's passionate. That's what we're thinking about tonight. Now, let me say one final thing, uh, coming back to what we've got here before I finish. This Song of Songs, it's not an allegory. Don't push the details. But it is part of the Bible. And therefore, the picture of a lover, a male lover, and her belo his beloved, 
that fits into the sweep of Scripture. And the picture of God's love for his people is often described in this way. So primarily this is about romantic love between a man and a woman. Don't push the details, but it does present for us something of, it gives us a picture, an image of, how God feels about his people, how Jesus Christ loves his church. Let me just uh, show you a couple of places it it fits in. So um, uh, back in Isaiah 5, verse 1. Uh, Isaiah uh, speaks of God this way. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. God makes a vineyard, Israel, in the Old Testament. It's quite similar to what's going on here. Or Hosea chapter 2. God says of his people, Therefore I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Therefore I'll give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor A door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. God is quite happy describing his relationship with his people this way. Or, of course, most explicitly, we won't read it all, but in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, which is the classic passage in the scriptures on marriage, concludes this way. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Of course, what he's saying there is marriage, it is designed as a picture. It is a parable of Christ's love for his people. That is why God has given marriage for this life. Marriage is penultimate. Matthew 22, there will be no marriage in heaven. Because God's people will be married to their groom, Jesus Christ. So don't push the details. Don't, don't, don't make it into an allegory, make everything about something else. Don't do that. But at the broad level, yes. Yes is a picture of Christ's love for his people. Because even in this song, even in the Song of Songs, the lovers suffer disappointment. We'll get to it next week, but just look briefly. Chapter 3, verse 1. They've had this wonderful romantic encounter in chapter 2. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, all night long on my bed, I look for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but didn't find him. And there's even the great love that's described here. It doesn't, doesn't quite do it. There's still frustrations. There's still discontent. It, there's fulfillment, but then, oh, let down again. And that's any relationship in this life. Lots of people will have good marriages here. I think I, have a, I think I have a great marriage in many ways. But it is nothing compared to that which will come. And it's flawed. Of course it is. And it doesn't satisfy me. Because I'm not made just for that. I'm made primarily for a relationship with Jesus Christ. So the married here will read this song of songs and some will despair and think, we'll never be like this. We'll never have this sort of affection for one another. Some kind of joke. Are you ever going to read anything like that to me? Write me a poem? You will never. And in truth, no. Probably no marriage will ever have this sort of intensity. Probably won't. We can get better. Yeah, of course we can get better. But never have this sort of, 
desire and intensity. It'll never be this good properly because the song points us beyond itself to the fulfillment which is Christ and his people. And I don't want to be odd on this. But if this is the truth, this is a profound mystery. Marriage is fundamentally about Christ and his church. Which means that God has given the one flesh element of marriage, the physical intimacy. That again is a picture of Christ and his church. And so I'm, I'm persuaded that biblically, the greatest moment of physical pleasure in a sexual relationship, that moment of ecstatic climax, it is still only a picture of how good it will be to see Jesus Christ face to face. And it's a small picture. But God says, words aren't quite enough, and I'm giving you this to, so you can understand in part how wonderful that will be. All we have now is an echo, a shadow. So can I say to you, I know you don't want to hear this, some, but if you long for this passionate love, if you long for one to speak to you in this sort of way, to declare you beautiful, so it doesn't matter what the posh shitty girls say, it doesn't matter what other men say, your beloved, your lover thinks you're the only apple in the woods. If you long for one to speak to you in that sort of way, with that sort of intensity, he does. That is the relationship we have now. It's begun with Jesus Christ. But when we see him face to face, these songs we sing, the last one, our glory, my redeemer, when I see his face, it will be paradise. Yes, beyond anything we've ever known. And of course, some will say, I want both. I want to see him then, and I want the arms around me now. I know. And that's hard. But when we get there, we realize we're not comparing two things that are similar. We're comparing a grape with the vineyard. We're comparing a leaf with the tree. We're not comparing two things. The, the, the marriage now, it's good, can be very good. But compared to marriage then, we're not comparing things that are the same. It's a picture. It's a parable. Marriage now, even the best, it's a shadow of what we'll have when we see him face to face. Let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Father, how grateful we are that uh, you know how we're hearing this song of songs. For some here, there will be guilt and regret over mistakes made. For some, there will be a sense of humiliation at how far we are from this in our marriages, a despair that we'll ever get anything like close to this. For others, a frustration that there's seemingly a world that they don't know yet or feel that they may not get to know. We, you know what we need. Please, Father, would your spirit bring us what we need? Would it uh, encourage us, comfort us, rebuke us if we're abusing this gift? Please, will you do what you need within us? And above all, will you keep us looking forward 
to that day when we will meet the Lord Jesus Christ, when we will see him face to face. And it will be paradise beyond anything we've ever known here on earth. And we'll be able to give you thanks for just the little pointer that marriage was to encourage us to keep going for that day. Amen.